This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. On August 3rd, one year ago, Patrick Crucius, a 21-year-old white man from Allen, Texas, drove across the state to a Walmart in El Paso alongside the Mexican border, where he shot and killed 23 people and injured 23 others, the majority of them Latinos. He had earlier posted an online manifesto with white nationalist and anti-immigrant themes, complaining of a so-called Hispanic invasion. The massacre is considered to be the deadliest anti-Latino attack in American history. On this two-part episode of the Commonweal Podcast, we talk with several people from El Paso about that day, about what has transpired in the year that has passed, and about how life has and hasn't changed on the border, politically, culturally, and spiritually. In this first part, I speak with Monsignor Arturo Benuelas of the Diocese of El Paso along the U.S.-Mexico border. He serves as a priest at one of the largest parishes in the city, St. Mark's Church, and he rushed to the Walmart as news of the shooting broke. Our other guest is Naomi Deanda, an El Paso native and a theology professor at the University of Dayton, who speaks with Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and Audience Development Director Milton Javier Bravo. Just a caution that what follows includes some graphic descriptions of the events of that day, and it may be disturbing to some listeners. My name is Arturo Banuelas, a priest of the Diocese of El Paso, Texas, along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I serve as a priest at one of the largest parishes in the city, St. Mark Church, Su Casa. I remember it as if it happened yesterday. I, as soon as I heard the news about the Walmart massacre, I went to the store and the police had closed off the area. So I went to a nearby school where the families of the victims were waiting there for word of their loved ones. It was worse than a nightmare. Uh, people were crying desperately to hear anything about their loved ones in the store. I remember I talked with a mother uh, who had left uh, three of her children, dropped them off, because they wanted to buy some school supplies that morning at the store. And the poor mother was just besides herself walking up and down. Uh, she kept calling the children on her cell phone and they wouldn't answer. So you can imagine she was so worried, desperate, afraid, scared, and crying. And she would just go up to the police and say, please tell me anything about my sons. Are they wounded? Just give me some news. I sat with another young man who was just sitting there uh, so sad. He told me that he traced the phone of his parents who were in the store. This is already an hour afterwards. And he says, the phone is in the store and nobody is answering the phone. I, I just went from family to family, praying with the families, anxiously waiting to hear a word of anything that happens inside the store. For most of the persons there, eventually it was sad news. A few days later, I remember going to the Civic Center where the Red Cross has set up tables to help the victims with counseling, offer them several services. They could pick up the keys to take their cars and the belongings. Mm. And, and you could feel the heavy pain and the sorrow and, mm. and a lot of anger. Mm. One of the ladies was sharing with us at the table 
she was still so traumatized that when she heard the shooting, she grabbed the lady and pulled her down and then told her to crawl to the back exit of the store. And then she went back to get another lady. And when she went to grab her, uh, she saw a bullet hit her head. Mm. It, it was just a tremendous trauma that she, uh, I mean, it was just horrific. She'll have that for the rest of her life. Mm. There are a lot of these painful stories from our 23 families who's lost loved ones and dozens more who were wounded. And then the people who were inside the store who witnessed the massacre. Mm. At the funerals that I had, the family spoke about the tremendous loss because of this racist murder. There was a story of one of the funerals I did where the young man had stood in front, he saw the, the gunman and he stood in front of his wife and granddaughter so that they wouldn't be hurt. And he was shot in the back and killed and died immediately. At the funeral, the granddaughter said that she had always considered her grandfather a hero I mean, he gave his life to save theirs. Mm. For me, it's still painful to share some of these stories of that event. So you can imagine what it must be like and what the families are dealing with, with all that trauma and all their pain. I still keep praying for them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about your accompaniment of survivors over the past year and what you might have witnessed and what you might have experienced and what you have been learning from them. Yeah, since that time, August the 3rd, the bishop and some of the priests have been working with the families. You know, Pope Francis sent them all a rosary. Mm -hmm. The families are still, I've been talking with some of them, they're still hurting a lot. And some of them are still very angry. And some of the wounded are still going to surgeries and are still going to get some counseling. I have seen in the families a tremendous faith. Those that have a lot of faith and are active in the parishes are being able, they're able to deal with this crisis a lot better because in all the discussions, God is part of their discussion and they don't blame God, they blame the racist young man for the loss of their loved ones. I visited regularly with one of the last persons to die who was in the hospital for nine months. He was a coach and he was standing in front of the Walmart store. They were selling hot dogs to raise funds for his little league soccer team, the, the girls team. His wife was also wounded, but she survived. After nine months, he was in the hospital and his wife heroic was by his side all this time. But after nine months, he couldn't um, struggle any longer. Because of the virus, we had a very simple funeral, and the bishop was there also and presided. The team, the families of the team, did have a very public memorial service for the coach. And so we all keep the family, his children. We love that family. As a priest, I felt it was our calling to be with these families as much as possible. Even though, you know, we're not prepared for such overwhelming trauma and suffering with a crisis like this. I would go home after the funerals crying 
after visiting with the families because their grief and pain was so deep. They taught me the importance of the presence of the church at these painful moments, just to offer them comfort. Such overwhelming trauma and pain and suffering was very helpful to me and transformative when we shared with faith and with hope. It was, it was a sacred moment. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about an address that you gave in El Paso last fall. It's a very uh, passionate, uh, moving address, which you argued that the shooter, a 21-year-old white man, did not come alone to El Paso that day. He brought with him, as you said, the President of the United States, the NRA, Fox News, neo-Nazis, and all others who have waved the bigoted flag of white supremacy. Could you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? This white young man who came to kill members of our border family, he wrote a manifesto of hate in which he stated that he wanted to intentionally come and kill Hispanics and Mexicans because they were invading our country. I mean, these words are often voiced by our president. White supremacist propaganda, you hear it all the time, Fox News, NRA supporters of gun advocates, and always in the narratives of neo-Nazis. The assassin that came into our city from the outside is a product of a culture of systemic racism that continues to flourish in our country, especially now with the support of our president and many of his administration. I don't believe that people are born racist. However, white people are born into a privileged culture that in laws, politics, policies, educational curriculums, inadequate health care, voter suppression that we see now, housing norms, employment, environmental policies, what you see in the media about us, they put marginalized people of color at a disproportionate disadvantage to enhance white power. This assassin, like all white supremacists, was threatened by the fear of losing this privilege. As a consequence, we experience the extreme terrorizing danger that racism continues to bring and brings death at many levels of the lives of the poor and of Hispanics. Following up on that, I, I wonder if you could talk about what the borderlands have to teach the rest of us throughout the country, especially at this time now, a year later or so, as we're grappling with structural racism in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd. Yeah, there's some very valuable lessons and I wanna share some of them, especially for us people of faith in the struggle for justice. A racist white young man came into our city and intentionally killed 23 people and devastated our whole community. And I think right now we're still responding to that. The blood of the victims challenges us to integrate our faith with a solid commitment to dismantle the structures of the interlocking injustices of systemic racism and the restrictive immigration policies. In this way, Christian love becomes a political action in the transformation of a better America. Then we can learn that. Second, 
The blood of the martyrs calls us to worship God by honoring the sanctity of those made in the image of God. In our city, the massacre affected all of us and in many ways affirmed our strong sense of unity as a family. We, we feel familia in this town. It made evident to many that we share a sacred oneness and that we are part of each other. And what hurts one hurts us all. And what blesses one blesses all of us. And third, the blood of the victims demands that we repent and rebuild. The victims' voices call us to support the poor and the excluded so that they can become the leaders and the agents in dismantling a system built on racism, oppression, and inequality. It must start with them. It has to start with them so that societal transformation can be credible and authentic. Otherwise, we're doing the same thing as the status quo that we have now. I wonder if you could talk a little more about that, about the church's response and not only what it yet has to do, but maybe if what it has done well or what it has not done as well. And maybe what lessons do you think that the past year can hold for people of faith in this country? It was a time where a lot of people seemed to come back to church because they were looking for some peace, some healing, and trying to make sense of all of this tragedy that we had. But our church was not silent, and our church was present in El Paso. Again, I think an important lesson, besides the, the ones I, I just mentioned, is that we can no longer remain on the sidelines as a church when our brothers and sisters are suffering. We cannot be neutral in the face of hate and violence and racism. Otherwise, we're allowing and maybe even fostering a culture of hate and death and allowing that to have a place in our society. The gospel of Jesus Christ is real and prophetic. And I think that's one of the lessons that came out for us. But that how we have to integrate in our, our spirituality, that kind of solidarity commitment, especially always journeying with the sufferings of the poor among us. What has sustained your spirituality in particular over the past year? And, and I guess especially now at this time of year, as the one-year mark passes. What sustains me spiritually is my conviction of hope that hate does not win, that only love wins. I feel more challenged to be more prophetically in raising my voice against all the manifestations of racism that we see. And I also feel a profound new connection with Black Lives Matter movement activists, with Native American struggles, with the immigrants' plight. And as someone that belongs to the so-called people of color, at the same time as a priest, I feel a renewed obligation to bring about healing in our society. We cannot remain indifferent or silent when our brothers and sisters are suffering. That's very clear to me. Otherwise, we give room to racism to take root in our lives. A stronger sense of solidarity with the poor who teach me most of the time, they're my greatest teachers in ministry. It has strengthened my faith and my hope 
that I believe people at heart are good people and that people want to do good in spite of all the things that we see. And it's made me feel like I've chosen the better part. Monsignor Benuelas, thank you so much for being with us to talk about this. And we wish you and your community well. Thank you for inviting me. God be with you. I am the president of the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians of the United States and an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. I grew up between El Paso and Corpus Christi and mi familia, that means my big extended familia, aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, friends, live in El Paso. Professor Deanda, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Milton. Events at the border tend not to attract much attention from the media. Why is it important to keep thinking about it, however painful it may be? The trauma suffered by the people in the store and the ongoing pain of those who lost so much that day cannot be forgotten. We don't erase history to distill it. To distill these stories, to distill the history, to gloss over them and forget them, means that we continue to play into that same white supremacist logic. We continue to feed into it, and we continue to deny the pain and suffering the specific people's lives. I'm not sure people have moved on in El Paso and beyond. I think the traumas are stacking, and I think it's important to continue to reflect on this because these lives matter. These specific lives matter. The lives that were taken, the lives that were affected. We hear about the 23 victims and countless others who were shot. We hardly ever hear about the people who left the scene because they were so scared that they or someone who was with them did not have documentation recognized by the government of the USA. And they were just so afraid that they would be picked up by anyone and deported or taken into custody that they left. So we will never have full numbers of how many people were directly affected and impacted. Then the other side of that, and this was very much what the shooter wanted, was to target not just the specific population and not just the specific people at Walmart on that day, but a much broader population that has been targeted with rhetoric of hate, which has strongly increased with the Trump administration, yet has been around since the inception of the USA. So the hate crime is not just about El Paso. It's the logic of domination, which marks some for death so others may benefit from these people, which has been made disposable. The impact that it had on my students and other students, the suicide rate that I have seen go up over the last year, the number of students that I have directly dealt with Latinx students who 
have considered suicide. These are college students, very bright people with bright futures have been strongly impacted by both the rhetoric and then that rhetoric that led to this matanza that traumatized them yet again. Professor Deanda, you're a theologian by training with a specialization in border theology. What can border theology teach us? How can it help us understand not only what happened last August, but what's been happening, as you say, for years and what's happening even today? Sure. So I'm I'm a Latina theologian, and that training came both from a formal educational system of a PhD with a certain canon, yet being from the border taught me that there are always multiple worlds at play. So being from the particular Mexico-USA border, I've known since I was a very, very, very small child that there are always multiple worlds at play. I, I grew up knowing that there are multiple systems of measure, different currencies, different governments, how you deal with the police, all kinds of differences even differences in language inflections and words and what is acceptable and unacceptable in various places. And so when I entered into my theological studies as a doctoral student, I knew that the canon that was being given to me wasn't the fullness of everything that there was out there because I also came from a different world. And so developing a border theology one thing that I think is very important to recognize is that the border, and in this case are borders, the Mexico-USA political border is a concrete and very specific place from where to begin to think. So it's not a metaphor, and I can't emphasize that enough. To think from the border, or a specific political border, in this case, the Mexico-USA border, means that it's about the very specifics and the concretes. It's about El Paso being a community perpetually in tension. It really is a place of strong tension, of strong variance, of things that don't necessarily fit together yet survive together and sometimes survive in contrast with each other. So there's kind of this always violence at some levels and always hope at other levels. A border theology allows us to think past those tensions with those tensions. It allows us to know that uh, people who work and live and worship with us are also the people who are trying so hard to have the safest of lives for their families. In a border theology, or in this particular border theology, we don't separate the political from the personal, and we don't separate our our faith experiences from what is happening every day around with the larger systems that are at play. So much of the discussion around immigration, racism, and the border in the United States has focused on policy. 
as if better laws and government programs alone can solve the problem. You've written about the limits of policy and the importance of overcoming the logic of domination in daily relations. Could you explain this further? I think policies are extremely important, yet I think that policies aren't the only place where change needs to occur. There's a couple of things. First, the notion of the logic of domination comes from my work in the study with women and girls and feminist studies, and that the most daily relations are the ones that have been left to women and girls. So the places of informality have been left to women and girls. And this goes very deep into our own Christian imagination, uh, the way we many times interpret the Genesis story of dominion and God telling Adam to, uh, Adam and Eve, actually the first man and first woman, to have dominion over the earth and the plants and the the animals, has been taken as a notion of domination. And it's this notion of domination that has fed into, and it's the, the inter- Christian interpretation of domination, this has fed into how we understand our relationship as Christians with land, and particularly, in, in this case, very specifically, the land of the Americas, because it is this very same Christian notion of domination that allowed for the strong, violent history against the lands and the peoples of what we now call the Americas, these lands we are on now today. And so this notion of domination is deeply embedded, and it's so deeply embedded that policy is not going to be the only thing that creates the change. We need to be able to be thinking about how we have interacted with this notion and how it is embedded in every single part of our lives. So when we are praying, how are we thinking about our relationship with the prayer and the words that we are saying and within those words for whom and for what are we praying and how are we praying in relationship to others and in relationship to land and if there are things that we think about that are dominating or God is in our side or God on our side then how do we get past that to To think that if we truly believe in a God that is universal, now you can question that, but if one truly believes that, then God isn't just on our side. So we need to question the the notion of domination, and that needs to be something that isn't just changed in policy, but is changed in these individual daily relationships. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, there's been a renewed interest in the work of anti-racism. 
What do theology and spirituality, especially as developed by Latino, Latina, Latinx authors and leaders, have to contribute? First and foremost, I want to say that we've been doing this work for years, and our communities have their own thinkers and their own wisdom figures. And two of the themes of Latino, Latina, Latinx theologies that come forward for me that I think are things that really should be important are un poquito de justicia, so just a little bit of justice understood as working toward better relationships. The fact that our work for justice is about working toward better relationships. And again, going back to that piece about domination and just policy versus the personal or daily experiences, that these better relationships that work needs to happen at many, many different levels, and that we need to work at it a little bit at a time. So knowing that we're not going to topple systems overnight, it would be wonderful to do that. And we've seen a whole lot of toppling happening over the last couple of months. So maybe some things are starting to topple much faster, but also celebrating when those little moments of better relationships occur. The second point is the notion of teología pastoral de y en conjunto. So the fact that theology and pastoral life mutually inform one another, work together, and are always done in community with others. So it's this ebb and flow of relationships that are ever bound together, which makes us more vulnerable to each other. So theology is more vulnerable to society, and society then also needs to be impacted by theological work. The work is that's being done is prophetic, but it's also part of the deep care for the fragility of life. And so I think that theme of Teología y Pastoral de y en Conjunto is just really important and central. And it can be used as a tool to help us think toward a future where we come together. So you mentioned vulnerability, and certainly that's something that many people are feeling right now, as well as fragility. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how, not that it's easy, but how can we move through vulnerability? How can we find courage when we feel vulnerable and fragile? I think that's such a hard question, especially in a time when we feel so vulnerable and so out of control. These days, I I sit in meetings where there are no answers. It's just more questions and more issues raised. And so I think it's very easy to fall into a pit of despair that began long before COVID and just seemed to have spiraled very dramatically with COVID. I also just remember some of the simple pieces. One we are all the church. That's Ecclesiology 101. We are all the church. And I may be a theologian formally trained, but the minute anyone is engaging their faith in any kind of reflective way, theology is occurring. We are engaging in God talk, theologos. 
So it's not something that should be left up just to the experts, the engagement of theology. We all have our parts to do, and we are also part of a communion of saints, people who have lived through dark times before us. We have people on whom we can stand on their shoulders. We have people to whom we can ask for prayers and to walk with us. But prayer is not the only answer. And just like policy does not solve all of our problems, to be in community and to be a Mago Dei in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God means that we are always caring for one another and creating systems of greatest care because of the great fragility of life. So to build a better and deeper relationship or deeper and better relationships mean we're also working the systems which fall for so many under the umbrella of the political. And I think many times we get worried about being called too political or being too political. But we as laity should not be afraid of that. We should not run from it. And if we have the documentation, and by that I mean a baptismal certificate, we have the privilege to live out our Christian call to provide for one another. We do that in little ways daily, Zoom gatherings, phone calls, text messages, uh, meals we provide for one another. But we can also do it in systemic ways, school board meetings, letters to our representatives, learning the needs of our neighborhood and raising awareness to how to respond to it. And to remember that as people of Catholic faith, we are not alone. We believe in being people of community made in the image and likeness of the Trinitarian and communal God. Well, that was really beautiful, Professor Naomi. Leanda, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both so much. Thanks for listening to this first part of our two-part episode on the El Paso shootings one year later. We'll be posting part two soon, and our guests will be Bishop Mark Seitz of the El Paso Diocese and Dylan Corbett and Marissa Lamone of the Hort Border Institute in El Paso. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcasting.